Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm excited to go through uh, this letter. It's five chapters, uh, but a letter filled with hope, a letter filled with uh, practical applications for the time in which we live and the place where we live. And uh, certainly it's uh, very uh, relevant to our life today. So I hope it'll be a blessing to you. I'm going to read some, some stats about an author. And if you think you know who this is, just speak up and let me know, um, you know who you think this author is. Okay, He's a New York Times bestselling author, uh, 17 novels, five nonfiction books with uh, 5 million copies in print. He's an evangelical from a Jewish heritage. Uh, his dad uh, is a Jew. His mother is a Gentile. Anyone? No? He's led seven delegations of evangelical leaders to meet with uh, Arab leaders such as Jordan's King Abdullah II, Egyptian President el-Sisi, United Arab Emirates Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. 2006, he started the Joshua Fund. No, does a good, the first letter is correct, J, so that's a, so Donovan gave us a good hint there with J. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, his group, the Joshua Fund, has invested more than $50 million in providing humanitarian relief to Holocaust survivors, the needy in Israel, to Syrian and Israeli refugees, and to strengthening the church in the Middle East. He has four sons, two of which have served in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. Uh, he and his family moved uh, to actually to Israel and live in Israel. Anyone? Joel Rosenberg. Joel Rosenberg, one of my favorite authors, especially of fiction books. Uh, I've enjoyed reading some of his nonfiction books as well. But why is, that, why is that important? When I was given the first fiction book of Joel Rosenberg, I read a little bit about him. You know, what is, what is this guy about? What is, what is, it, is, is his experience? And uh, he often writes uh, historical uh, fiction, usually around political, you know, themes and things like that. Some of the books are eerily relevant to things that happened. Uh, the book, The Last Jihad, he wrote before 9-11. And uh, very interesting, the similarities that uh, are in the book. But he's also, and something that has impacted me, is that he... Uh, is a, a courageous and unashamed follower of Jesus Christ. So I can read these fiction books without worrying about, you know, what, uh, what kind of language is going to be in the book, what, what types of uh, sexual content is going to be in the book. And usually each book he brings out the gospel of Christ in some way uh, through the story. So knowing a little bit more about Joel Rosenberg, knowing about his family, knowing that uh, he was born of a Jewish father, knowing that he has had you know, many opportunities to interact uh, with key leaders, not only here in the United States, he's been to the White House, uh, he's, he's had uh, you know, opportunities you know, here in the United States, but also in the Middle East with some of the key leaders there, gives me a much broader perspective as I read these fiction books and I begin to think, some of what he's writing, you know, already has played out. I'm not saying that he's a prophet, but some of the writings already played out, but it gives me an idea. He knows what he's talking about. He's been there. He, he has some, some knowledge of, of the inner workings of things that are, that are going on. This is what I want to do, hopefully, as we begin First Peter. Who is Peter? Why is he, you know, why was he chosen by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to us? What are some of the experiences that he lived in his life that are applicable to us? So we're going to look at the backstory 
And the big ideas as we jump into 1 Peter this morning. So first of all, let's just try to answer that question. Who is Peter? Well, he's, he says for himself in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, he starts off right away and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now in John chapter 1, we see that John the Baptist saw Jesus and he and two of his disciples, two of John the Baptist's disciples or followers were with him. Andrew was one of them. And John the Baptist saw Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God. And those two disciples then went closer to Jesus and Jesus basically asked them, hey, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you seeking? What, are you, what do you need? What are you doing? And they said, well, well rabbi or, or, or teacher, um, you know, we, we want to, where, where do you stay? Where, who are you? Where do you live? And they went with Jesus and spent the whole day with him. After that, that happened, then Andrew left, went to find his brother, Simon, who we often know as Peter. Andrew went and found Simon and said, uh, Simon, we have found the Messiah. Peter then comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, you, you are Simon, but now you're going to be called Cephas, that's Aramaic for rock, which is Peter is the equivalent in Greek for rock. So we see sometimes he's called Simon, sometimes we see uh, Cephas used for Peter, and then oftentimes we see his name Peter, which is rock. So Jesus already, as he sees Peter, he, he has a future in mind. Jesus knows exactly uh, what he's going to use Peter to do, and he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, when you get a chance to read it. A little bit after this, Jesus then encounters Peter again, and some of uh, James and John, others that were fishermen with him. They hadn't caught any fish, and so Jesus says, well, cast your nets on the other side. And they're like, well, you know, we fished all night. Uh, long story short, it was a miraculous catch of fish, and, and, G and Peter was, uh, was just amazed, actually fell down at Jesus' knees and said, you know, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, you've been a fisherman, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. So this is kind of the beginning of Peter as an apostle. He was part of the inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Of the 12, these were the inner circle. These oftentimes Jesus would involve them to do uh, things when the other disciples weren't around and gave even special tasks to them. Peter was married. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5, we see that sometimes Peter's wife even accompanied him on some of the ministry trips. That's not something we think about a whole lot, but 1 Corinthians 9 5 gives that indication that Peter took his wife along on some of the trips. He was a natural leader. In fact, he often spoke up when some of the other disciples were kind of quiet, kind of timid. Peter sometimes would just like, you know, jump, jump in and, and say things. And oftentimes we give Peter a hard time because it appears that like some of us, he, he talked before he really thought through everything all the time. But he was a natural leader. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And some of the disciples began to answer, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you are Elijah. Some, some, some say that you are Jeremiah. Some say that, you know, maybe you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks at him again, and this is a more personal question. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? 
And I don't know if this happened, but I can imagine maybe some of the disciples kind of, you know, looked, looked, glanced at each other real quick, and then it doesn't look like much time at all passed. And Peter, you know, he says, well, um, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that was not, basically, Peter, you didn't come up with that. That was revealed to you by God. And upon that rock, upon that foundation, that is how I will build my church. Yes, Peter walked on water at the sight of Jesus, miraculously walking on water. But Peter was the same one who began to sink as he took his eyes off of Jesus. Peter embarrassed himself when he told Jesus, um, you know, Jesus began to talk about how his, his upcoming death and how he would be killed. And Peter took Jesus aside and said, you know, Jesus, don't talk like that. This is not going to happen. And Jesus rebuked him and actually said, you know, get, get behind me, Satan. So in essence, he was saying, Peter, what you're saying is not of the Lord. This, this is not right. We see this Disciple who just by his name was referred to often again and again and again as, as the rock and the rock and the rock and the rock. Well, when it came time for Jesus to be betrayed, you know, at first Peter, he was one of the ones, remember, he brought out his sword and cut the ear off. He had told Jesus, if all the disciples flee and abandon, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus says, well, actually, you'll deny me three times. So this rock found himself around a fire vehemently saying no I don't know the man I'm not with the man no I don't know the man so we see an apostle of Jesus Christ with some very highs and some huge lows he's an elder first Peter chapter 5 and verse 1 verse 1 says so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder see that in first peter 5 and verse 1 so not only was peter one of the inner three disciples but he's referred to as one of the pillars of the early church now understand this is extremely important he's referred to as one of the pillars of the early church paul you know gives that description he's not called the pillar he's not called like the the rock of the church he's called one of the pillars he was one of the the, the primary leaders of the early church. God used Peter, you may remember in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, what we look back to as as kind of the official beginning of, of the church. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter boldly preached. And 3,000 people came to know Christ as their Savior. And a phenomenal experience. Not long after, in Acts chapter 4, the Lord used Peter, John was there as well, and the Lord used Peter to heal a lame man. In the, in the hours that followed, the crowd kind of gathered as they began to, to find out, you know, this lame man was, was healed by Peter. And then it says, also, it still says in Acts chapter 4, that, that close to 5,000 men now believed in Jesus Christ. This is, this is a, a prominent leader that God is using. It's not because Peter was so special. We've already seen some of his huge faults early in his ministry. Peter and John were arrested. The next day, Peter fearlessly preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Sanhedrin. 
So at one time when he was around the fire and saying, no, I don't know the man. I'm not with Christ. And three times. But now he's, he's with possibly some of these same people who had begun to try Jesus Christ and to, to mock him and, and, and try to take him to the cross. He's with some of the same people and he begins to boldly preach Christ. In Acts 10, God showed Peter through a special vision that he was to go to Cornelius' house, a Roman centurion. First, Peter was a little perplexed through this vision that was this, this unclean meat that he you know, had not customarily eaten as a Jew and didn't think that he should eat. But God showed him, well, you know, th- this is without doubt you need to go to Cornelius' house. And as he went and he, he shared the gospel with Cornelius, his relatives, and then it says a large gathering of friends. Cornelius, his relatives, and his friends came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Some tensions began to rise. The Jewish believers still held to some of the customs that they did even before coming to faith in Christ. And so some tensions arise in the early church of how much should the Gentiles follow? Should, you know, should the Gentiles, do they have to be circumcised to be saved? Do they have to follow the dietary you know, uh, the restrictions that we have followed as Jews? So we come to Acts 15. And there's this meeting of the leaders of the early church. And after some things have been said, Peter stands up and it says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, this is Acts 15, 7, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In essence, yes, as Jews, we've tried to follow the law. We've tried to follow the sacrificial system. We've tried to do all these things, and, he, and we, even we couldn't even follow this. So why are you trying to put the yoke on the Gentiles and things that we couldn't even follow completely? Why could they not follow it completely? Because all of those things were pointing to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would come as the perfect Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said, to fulfill in himself all of the law. So Peter says, you know, why are you putting this yoke on them in Acts 15, 11? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He's an elder. He's a leader. God's using him in some phenomenal ways. Yet this leader, this one who stood boldly before some of the other uh, you know, disciples and others that were Jewish believers and said, listen, this is, this is the truth. This is what salvation is about. This is the grace of Jesus Christ. Well, it came a time where in Galatians we see that Peter uh, had been in Antioch and he was enjoying fellowship with the Gentiles, even sharing meals But then as other Jewish believers began to arrive, Peter began to feel some pressure and he kind of distanced distanced himself from the Gentiles. Paul noticed this and Paul lovingly but firmly confronted Peter and said, you know, this is is hypocrisy. This is not the way you who, you know, uh, were dealing and having relations with the Gentiles and now you you, you distance yourself. This This is not right. So we see Peter again, who's, he has these highs and lows. He's a witness of Christ's sufferings, First Peter 5 also says. 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now I think it's very interesting. To, to the biblical account that we see, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that Peter was at the cross while Jesus was being crucified. I, I can't find any evidence in the New Testament that Peter was there. We know that John was there. He was called uh, the one whom Jesus loved. So John was there. Some of the ladies were there, but we don't see that Peter was there. But yet Peter says, I've been a witness to Jesus' sufferings. There's one passage that I think is very interesting for us to think a little bit uh, more through, Luke chapter 22, 60 through 65. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pull some key parts out of this passage. Might mark it down in your notes and, and love for you to look at it later. But as... You know, as Peter has said boldly, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'm not going to abandon you. And Jesus says, well, you're going to deny me three times. And in Luke 22, Peter, this third time that he was asked if he was with Christ, if he knew Christ, he says, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Then this, this to me is, is extremely interesting. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I, I can't know exactly kind of what the scenario was, but it seems to be that Peter was at least close enough where he could see some of what was going on. He didn't want to be too close because he didn't want to be identified with Jesus Christ at this moment. That's why he denied him three times. But he at least appeared to be close enough that Jesus, after Peter had denied him the third time, Jesus it says here in Luke chapter 22 that, that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And then the next phrase says, And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I, I can only imagine the look in that moment and how Peter felt after having walked, slept, ministered, seen Jesus' miracles for three years. He denies him a third time. Then Jesus, all he has to do is just turn and look at Peter in the eyes. And Peter melted. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now right after that, the description is this. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. I think it's very possible that as Peter says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, Peter's at a distance, he's around the fire, he denies three times, he can, close enough where he can see Jesus, I think that this passage indicates that he had already seen some of the things and ways that Jesus was being persecuted and beaten and mocked and blasphemed. And so now as he writes to these believers uh, in what we know as modern day Turkey, he says, I'm a witness of Jesus' sufferings. John chapter 21, after the resurrection of Christ. Christ shows his faithful love to Peter. This is the third time that Christ has appeared before the disciples. 
And I think even the imagery here is, is really interesting because as they were out fishing, and once again, Peter, or Jesus led them to a miraculous catch of fish, but Jesus is already on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And so he's on the shore, he's already made a fire, he's already got some fish on the fire, and he, he invites the disciples, he says, hey, come and have some breakfast. Come gather around the fire. No, I, I don't know for sure. And one day I plan to ask Jesus, or not Jesus, but Peter. I want to ask Peter this. When Jesus invited you to come around the fire to have some breakfast of what he had prepared for you, did you think about maybe the, a more recent time or, or a very recent time that you were around another fire and had denied Jesus three times? Did, did that come to your mind? Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But nonetheless, Jesus is offering, he's, he's preparing the breakfast, he invites Peter and the disciples. But then at some point, after they've spent some time in fellowship there, and the, the disciples brought in a bunch of, of fish, and one of the passages even gives a specific number of fish. I love the detail of Scripture. But at some point, it, Jesus then begins, he, sep, he, he signals out, he singles out rather, Peter, and he begins to kind of walk away from the group. And he asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I, I love you. Well, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And Peter's, he's, he's getting, you know, exasperated here. He's like, yes, Jesus, I, I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. Third time. And then Jesus begins to talk and tell Peter, really, and foretell him how Peter will die. And it appears, tradition has it, that he, that he died a crucifixion's death. Jesus does talk about how his hands will be tied. He will be carried. You know, when he was young, he walked. But when he's old, people, people are going to, you know, uh, tie his hands. And John gives the commentary. Jesus said this as to the manner of death that Peter would experience. Peter turned around and he saw John following them. That's how we know that Jesus singled out Peter and began to walk away from the group because Peter turned back and he, began, he saw John following. And at that moment, Peter looks at Jesus and says, well, well, what about him? What about him? And Jesus says, listen, if he remains, you know, until I come back, what is that to you? Follow me. Follow me. Peter then did go on to be persecuted. In Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, we see that Peter is beaten a couple times. We see that Peter is imprisoned. So Peter does begin to experience the persecution that Jesus said, hey, you're going you're gonna to suffer. There's going to be some time, especially at the end of your life. Now, it's very likely, it's hard to know exactly when Peter was written, but Peter does not mention Paul in this letter. But he is in Rome. We think he's in Rome because at the end of the book, he, he uses a word of Babylon. Babylon in Revelation is another word that's used for Rome. So we think that most likely Peter's in Rome and when he writes this, but he doesn't mention Paul being around. So it's probably after Paul was imprisoned in Rome for the first time, was released, and most likely during that time frame, A.D. 64 or so, that Peter is writing from Rome Nero is, is about to begin some intense persecution. He hasn't yet, you know, uh, a Roman Empire wide. He hasn't yet started all the persecution that would be seen. And then it would even go worse and worse with the other emperors, even after Nero. But around AD 64, Peter is, is writing this. There's some persecution that's already happening. 
So he sees some of the sufferings. He sees the sufferings of Christ and he himself begins to be persecuted as well. But I don't want you to miss this. This is not just about Peter. This isn't so you can take a quiz this afternoon and give me and spit back some facts about, yeah, Peter was an apostle. He was one of the inner three and he did this and this and that. No, I don't, I don't have a study guide for you to pass the exam at the end of the series. It's not a bad idea. But that, that's not the idea. The main goal is I want you to see in Peter a reflection of you, of yourself, and of me. Think about this. Peter was not a model man, but he was a moldable man. Peter was not a model man. He was not like this, you know, just all of a sudden, this phenomenal Christian that would always say the right thing and do the right thing. And No, he, he stuck his foot in his mouth a lot of times, and he, he said some stupid things, and he did some stupid things. He wasn't a model man, but he was a moldable man. As he made mistakes, he, he allowed Jesus Christ to, to mold him into what Jesus wanted him and had really chosen him to do. He wasn't a model man, but he was a moldable man. Even in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter himself could identify with this. Peter could think back of when I was in darkness, when I was a fisherman who didn't know Jesus Christ, I didn't know the Messiah. Andrew, my brother, came to me and said, we found the Messiah, and I went, and then Jesus changed my name, and he didn't just change my name, but he's changed my whole life. And now he's proclaiming the excellencies, and he's telling these others who are experiencing some hard times and trials and persecution, he's saying, this is, this is what it's all about. Proclaim these excellencies, these praises of Christ who's called you out of the darkness and into the light. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Molding, being conformed, being changed, being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That is God's goal for every one of us. Romans 8, 29, Paul also says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. To be conformed to the image of his Son. Peter wasn't a model man, but he was a moldable man. And I hope that each of you understand and recognize, and I think the first part we all rec you know, recognize pretty easily. Yeah, we're, we're not model Christians. But I pray the second part won't just be a part of Peter's history, but it'll be part of your prayer. God, mold me into what you want me to be. Help me to be moldable. Help me to be uh, seeking and pursuing this transformation to conform to your image. Secondly, Peter's situation-driven denial. He was fearful. He didn't quite understand. He, he hadn't quite, you know, grasped all of Christ of what he had said about dying and then, and then building the temple back again in three days. They, they, didn't, they didn't get all of what was going on. And so in this, in this situation-driven denial, Peter denied Christ three times. But Peter's situation-driven denial did not determine his God-given destiny. 
Although we know, and millions and millions of other Christians through the, through the generations, and even many unbelievers know, yeah, Peter was the one who denied Christ three times. So yes, that's part of his story. But anybody who studied Peter at all and read much of Scripture knows that is not what defined him. That's not how he ended. That wasn't God's final plan and how uh, God would work out his will in Peter's life. Proverbs reminds us that a righteous man falls seven times and he gets up again. Peter did that. You've done that. But I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you. Get up again. Don't stay defeated. Don't think, well, goodness, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a victim. Satan wants you to, to think, you know, that you, he wants you to become a victim instead of becoming victorious. He wants you to think, man, I, I've fallen, I've messed it up. How can I go forward? Because that is God's power in your life. You don't have to be defined by the mistakes of your past. I have no doubt, and we've, we've gone through this before. Remember the, remember the screen, the movie of your life illustration? That the same thing. I guarantee you that none of us would enjoy staying here for much long at all if all of our thoughts, everything in the past, was shown on a screen for everybody to see. In essence, we are needy people. We have problems. We do some things sometimes that people look at us and go, I did yesterday. Was that a soccer game? Michael's team was playing. It was a close game. Some of the defensive players on his team, I didn't feel like they had done what their job to do. And because they didn't do their job, then the other team scored a goal. I was into the game. And so I, I had a hat on and I stood up and I threw the hat down. I'm like, man, come on. And around me, Kim's on my left, Mary's on my right, Christina's on my right. And they're like, Wow. Woo. A little bit later, Kim softly says, "Hun, I think you might want to just try to stay seated for a while. <laughs> later in the evening, it came up again and it was discussed like, yeah, that was kind of a glimpse of, of David, of high school David. And Kim says, you know, although it, you know, it, is, it is kind of alarming, some, in some way it's humorous because I, I, see, I see kind of what I used to see when we first started dating in high school. And I made the comment, yeah, it's still in there. That, that problem is still in there. And sometimes it, it just comes out. That wasn't my finest moment. That's not what I'm going to post on Facebook. It's not what I'm going to send out on ministry updates. Hey, guys, I lost my temper at my son's soccer game. They did win in the end. But so, it's, that's not what it's all about, though. So we see, you know, there, there's things that we, we make mistakes and. Satan wants us to think, yeah, you're a victim of that. You're not going to get over that. Just kind of lay low. At least you're going to go to heaven. Satan, if Satan knows, you know, that you're already a believer, that he can't change that. John chapter 10 says that no one, Satan's included, cannot pluck us out of the hand of God the Father and God the Son. Satan cannot change that. But if you allow him and your flesh to diminish your, your influence, then he's happy. If, he, if you can just stay quiet, if you can just kind of lay in the background, if you can just kind of think, yeah, I'm a victim, I, I've done some stupid things in the past, and, and I've got a lot of nasty in my life. Satan's like, yeah, keep thinking that. But God says, no, that's not your destiny. Your mistakes don't define you. And we also see that Peter's limitation did not, limitations did not limit God. 
Peter's limitations did not limit God. Acts 4 and verse 13 now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, these were, these were religious leaders who did not believe in Christ, but who were uh, persecuting Peter and John. They didn't want them to continue to preach in the name of Christ. It says, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, in, in other words, that just means ordinary, that they weren't uh, uh, you know, educated as the, the religious elite. They were uneducated. They were, they were ordinary, common men. It says they were astonished. And then the next phrase is key. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That made all the difference. There's been some criticism even of the book or the letter of 1 Peter with some saying in modern times, this wasn't Peter who wrote this. This, is, this, this Greek is too eloquent. Some of, these, some of these phrases, some of these ideas is above what Peter could have been capable of. After all, wasn't he called uneducated and common and ordinary? And I say to that, yeah, but, but look at the power of God. How can God change someone who, yes, was common, who was ordinary, who maybe didn't have the finest schooling in the religious things of the past, but God, Jesus Christ, made the difference. So that's why we see Peter's limitations did not limit God. And I hope you'll see yourself in Peter in the sense that you may be tempted this morning to think, yeah, man, it's just my personality. This is just who I am. I, I can't really do a whole lot for God because of my personality. I have some, some physical limitations and I can't really do all that I love to do for God right now because I've just had some physical limitations. I've got an age limitation. I, I just, I don't feel like I can do the things that I want to do because of the age that I have. I've shared with you, some, some of you before, that I, I felt like that to an extent. One of the first times that I worked, uh, walked on KSU campus knowing that we were going to start a church in this area. I remember walking on campus and going, what am I, what am I doing here as a 45-year-old at the time? All these college students are going to think, you know, I'm kind of crazy. I'm hanging around campus and I'm trying to, you know, meet, meet students. I don't know the lingo. I don't know the terms to say. I still find myself as my kids come home and they'll say something. I'm like, what? What does that mean? And they have to interpret to me. Broken relationships in the past, you may think, man, I, I've had some horrible relationships. I didn't grow up with a good relationship. You may think this. I didn't grow up with a good relationship with my parents. And so I'm limited. I've been through a nasty divorce and there's still effects to that today. I'm limited. What can I do for God? I have difficulty in this area and in this area and so, so I'm limited. I'm estranged from family. Maybe you've had friends who've hurt you. But we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're exactly the person that God wants to use. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think this is going to deeply encourage you. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's not who we are and what we've done, but it's the message that we, we convey. It's the message that we share. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So as it is written, let the one, this is verse 31, we we jumped a few verses, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? In the Lord. It's not the personality I have, it's not the charisma I have, it's not the the connections that I have, it's not the money that I have or lack of money that I don't. It's none of those things. But as we grow in Christ and as we depend on him and as we look to him to be our living hope and to be the power in us, just as Peter saw and his life records to us, his limitations did not limit God and yours, your limitations will not limit God either. He is ready to use you for his power and his glory. Okay, so that's a little bit about Peter. Who did he write to? What was the audience? What were some of the things that happened? First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 gives us Two words that in, it summarizes uh, beautifully kind of this group of people that we, that we see. They were elect or chosen exiles. First Peter 1 and verse 1. Peter and Apostle Jesus Christ are those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Just real quick, I'll show a couple, uh, two, two maps here. So this would be Bible times. These are some of the words that I just read. Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus. Pontus. So Jerusalem is down here. So based on some of the persecution that was happening here, then they begin to, to come up into this area, Asia Minor, what we know as uh, the, the next slide will show this. So this is kind of a modern day. You have the Taurus mountains, mountains here and then modern day Turkey. That's kind of the area that, that is focused on and the church is in that area in 1 Peter chapter 1. Elect exiles. Think about this, this other term here that, that kind of gives us another idea of the irony of the paradox in that phrase, elect exiles. How about this? Elite outcasts. Yeah, I'm part of the elite outcast. What, what? Elite outcast? I don't think you understand the vocab. But Peter's saying, he, he writes, these, these people have received the letter. They've, they've gone through some difficulty. And I'm sure it was extremely encouraging them to, as, as they began to read this letter. And they would read it as they gathered. And usually the custom was to read through the whole letter. We, we are not going to do that today, and we normally don't. But they would read through the whole letter. And as Peter says, hey, I'm an apostle of Christ, but I've, I've written to you, to those who are elect, those of you who are chosen, exiles. This is the people who don't feel like they're home. In fact, they're not really home. They've had to leave their home. They're in unfamiliar settings. They don't feel like they belong. But Peter starts out, the description says, but you're chosen for this. You are where you need to be. You are where God wants you to be right now. You're elect exiles. This past Friday night at ISF, one of the questions, one of the small group discussion questions was this. If there is a God, obviously we believe there is, but some of the students don't. So we we phrase it in this manner. If there is a God, what would be one of the questions that you would ask him? And one of the questions that came up, and then many agreed that this would be a question that they would like to ask God as well, is, 
what exactly, I mean like checklist type, what exactly am I supposed to do every day of my life? Can you just kind of, can you just send me that update by email or by text or, you know, whatever way you want to do it, God? Can you, could you do that? And many of the people there on Friday night agreed, yeah, that, that would be helpful. How many of you would find that to be helpful? You could just get up and you have this checklist where God has said you need to do this, this, and this. And everything else you can just forget about because it's not part of my, we would like that. We, we, most of us would appreciate that. It would, be, it would seemingly be you know, easier to, to check off some things. Now, some things, I think we would look at our checklist at the beginning of the morning and go, oh, Lord, what, really? This is on my checklist today? So I think for that reason, sometimes God says, I'm going to give you the grace when you need it, not before. But we see that Peter's reminding them, as we often need to be reminded, this is where you need to be. I have a plan that I'm working in your life. I'm working behind the scenes. Things may not be coming together. The puzzle pieces may not be fitting in your life. But if you're a follower of Christ, you're chosen for this time. God has, has ordained in his sovereign plan that I, I, I'm honest with you, I cannot fully understand how all that works. I'm just going to be honest. I can't, I can't fully understand that. We have the responsibility to respond in faith. There's time and time again an invitation. Believe, put your faith in Christ. But yet we see also God's power working and calling and leading people to saving knowledge of Christ. I don't understand how all of that works, but thank God I'm not God, and he does. But one huge encouragement to me is no matter what I face, no matter where I'm at, what things are happening in my life, that I can be reminded as Peter reminded this group, this is, this is what God's doing in my life right now. This is where I'm supposed to be. As limited human beings, we find it super appealing to have that affirmation, to be able to check off things, simple things like, you know, is this the right major? And some of you say, no, 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 forget that. Should I even be in college? You know, you're asking these things. Am I dating the right person? Am I living in the right part of the world, the right part of America, perhaps? Uh, do I have the right friends? But these believers who had been uprooted from their homes, their familiar surroundings, they imagine, you know, the feeling that when Peter writes this, he calls them, you're chosen exiles. This isn't by mistake. And I think that's very helpful for us in 2023. As we face difficulties, as, as people begin to, to mock more and more what we hold to as, as Scripture and our faith in Christ, it's important that we remember this is exactly when God wanted every one of you to be alive, right now. He didn't, he didn't call the heroes of the faith to be alive right now. He didn't ask Abraham to be alive right now. He didn't even bring Paul or Saul you know, to be alive right now in 2023. He wants you and I to be alive and to stand for him because that is part of God's perfect plan. Who else? So who, who did he write to in a general sense? Jews and Gentiles both. The term, the dispersion, is used, so certainly there's Jews in that. Uh, in other passages of Scripture, that, that refers to mainly Jews. But some of the description that we see in 1 Peter indicates that these were people who weren't saved out of a Jewish background, but out of a pagan background. There's Gentiles present also. So there's Jews and Gentiles. They're people who were facing trials. 
Some had already been killed for their faith. Think Stephen in Acts chapter 8. Think James, the brother of John, in Acts chapter 12. So there was some, some widespread, you know, uh, lesser persecution. And then there were some moments of extreme persecution that people were, that were losing their lives. Where they were at, it probably wasn't that extreme all the time. But there was certainly the presence of, you're not welcome here. This is not a place for you. You are not home. We, we do not agree with you that you're followers of the way. This guy, Jesus Christ, this man who claims to be the Messiah. There are people who were facing trials. Many of them had fled Jerusalem. They knew what it was to experience hardship and change and transition. Recently, Christina had to turn down a, a government nursing job because she refused to agree to counsel women in the means of abortion if those needs came up. And they said, we can't budge on that. I'm sorry. And she said, I'm sorry too. Can't do it. Biblically, with Christ, it's conviction. Jessica, who serves on the employee engagement community at UPS Capital, has had conversations with her supervisors as she volunteers and tries to get other people to volunteer. She's made it very clear, I cannot and I will not Lead, plan, or recruit people to be a part of the LGBTQ plus events that UPS does. I won't do it. It's difficult. Awkward conversations. Audrey participates in a student legislature team at her, at her Christian university. And they travel and they meet other student legislature teams from different parts of America. And they do kind of mock legislator sessions. And they... they, they uh, offer or they propose bills, mock bills. And Audrey many times has said, Dad, it is so frustrating because the bills that seem to get passed and the bills that seem to have the value in these mock legislative sessions are the bills that align with the liberal and anti-biblical thoughts of the day. And the good bills that we propose oftentimes are shot down and criticized and scrutinized more than any other. These are the types of things that we face in 2023. All of you could give examples to that. It's a common occurrence to see on the news parents who stand up to, uh, to uh, teacher you know, boards, student, you know, uh, the, the, the teacher boards of the district or whatever, and they stand up to that and say, no, you know, we don't want drag queen shows actually for our kids. We're, we're not for that. No, we don't want these, these books that are, are teaching a distorted view of sexuality to be read to our kids. And they stand up and they're oftentimes treated as villains. They're treated as enemies of good education. Followers of Christ who are trying to be conformed to the image of Christ in matters of holiness. Yeah, I, I said that word. It's not real popular, but we see that in 1 Peter. We're going to see that in more detail. Be holy because... I'm holy, Jesus said. So you see Christians who are trying to pursue holiness in their life that, they, that by unbelievers, many times they're considered to be radical. Look at these fanatics. They're radical. And unfortunately, sometimes even receive friendly fire from fellow believers who say, legalist. They're legalistic. Now, in no sense am I saying that we do things and there's a checklist that we earn our salvation, but we need to also understand God still calls us to pursue holiness. Still biblical. And unfortunately, the world and sometimes even fellow believers, we get, we get friendly fire like, you're legalist. 
Don't tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm not. Look in the Bible. Look in Scripture. And if you apply that, there's going to be some things that you do now that you shouldn't do. I'm just, just saying, lovingly, look in Scripture. Kevin Cochran served as the Atlanta police chief. In 2015, he, he wrote a book for a church Bible study that he was doing, and he was fired as the Atlanta fire chief because of that book. Excellent worker, honest, had integrity, but because he stood up for a biblical view on marriage and human sexuality, he was fired. Now, thankfully, three years later, a federal judge ruled in his favor, and he was, you know, he was awarded uh, money for those, those years out of a job, and now he's working for the Alliance for Defending Freedom to help others who face similar persecution in our day and time. Praise God for that. I heard Kevin Cochran speak several years ago, and I was challenged that this guy has lost his profession. At that point, he had not, the, the ruling had not been in his favor, and he said, hey, I lost my profession, but yet I'm still, I'm still seeking my Savior. I still want to honor him. These are the types of things that we face today, and these things and more are what those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, they were facing then, persecution. Now, I want to end with a couple big ideas. We're not going to get deep into these because we're going to go through these uh, here in the weeks to come. What are the big ideas? You are defined by the living hope you have in Christ. You are defined by the living hope you have in Christ. 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This isn't a mistake. He doesn't go, oh, I wonder how David's life's going to end up. No, he knew. It's part of his sovereign plan. So you are defined by the living hope you have in Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The day that Andrew went to, see, went to find his brother Simon and said, Simon, we found the Messiah. Simon did not wake up that morning going, I hope I find the Messiah today. He did not. But Christ did. And, and orchestrated in his sovereign plan, used John the Baptist and used the two disciples, one of them being Andrew, then to, to then go to Simon, bring Simon to the Messiah. God initiated that. Peter, yes, he responded, and we're responsible to respond in faith. We see that biblically. It's not by chance that any of you are in this room this morning. It's not chance. It's not by chance that some of you are thousands of miles away from your home. There's no chance to that. God has brought you, and I'm fully convinced of this, I have no doubt. God has brought you here for this very purpose. To hear the plan that he has for your life. That is why you're here. Some of you, you say, well, yeah, well, I grew up in Georgia, but it's not by chance you're here in this room this morning. It's not by chance that you have access to the Holy Scriptures where you can see more and more of what Jesus did for you and is doing and will do for you, past, present, and future. It's not by chance. You're defined by the living hope that you have in Christ. According to his great mercy, Christ gave me as a, as a little boy the opportunity to respond in faith and accept the gift of salvation that I did not deserve, I didn't seek after, I wasn't worthy of, but again, in only a way that, that, I, that I just trust in a sovereign God and a loving and gracious God that 
He gave me the opportunity to respond in faith, and my life has never been the same. I haven't been a model man all my life. I'm not even today, but I hope to be, and I hope you will be, a moldable individual. 1 Peter 1.4 says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That reminds us that our, our basis, our foundation, we're rooted in the living hope. Not anything that passes. And so many things that we, that we have in this world and that we do are just momentary. They pass. Secondly, you're defined by the glory you are to bring to Christ. You are defined by the glory that you are to bring to Christ. 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then there's this interesting phrase, and for sprinkling with his blood. Sanctification is, is nothing less than the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit who dwells within the life of every believer it's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to help us to continue to grow in our walk with Jesus Christ. And so we're, we're defined by, we're to, to bring glory to him. There's this living hope, yes, but then this second theme that we see all throughout this letter is that we are to live in many different realms, in marriage, in government, with other brothers and sisters in Christ, in all these ways, we're to live to give more glory to Christ. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, we, we see this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And notice verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor upon the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are defined by the glory that we're supposed to give to him. Real quickly, this, this reference to the sprinkling of blood that goes all the way back to the Old Testament where Moses, after he'd come down from Mount Sinai, he had received the law and, and uh, young bulls, it said, were sacrificed as part of the covenant that God was making with the people of Israel. Israel responded and said, yes, we will follow, we will obey all of these aspects of the law that we have just heard from your mouth, Moses. Moses, you know, wrote those things down and then the next day used, these sacrifices used some of the blood to sprinkle on the altar, indicating in a way that, that God is going to be faithful on his part of the covenant. But then he took some blood in what would be an extremely strange ceremony for us in 2023. Then he took some of the blood and sprinkled it on the people and indicating this is, this is your part. As you have indicated that you will follow God and that you will, you will obey the commandments. And Peter's bringing this imagery into the New Testament and into these people. And he's saying, there's going to be faithfulness on God's part. And as you, as you have accepted the gift, as the Holy Spirit works within you, it's not your power. The Holy Spirit works within you to continue to obey Jesus Christ. The covenant is sealed. It's kept. It's imperishable. It won't fade. This is a done deal for you. And then lastly, you are defined by the eternal glory you will enjoy with Christ. You are defined by the eternal glory that you will enjoy with Christ. Charles Philip Arthur George, most of you know him as King Charles III. He became next in line to become King of the United Kingdom when he was only four years old in 1952. So for 70 years, 
until 2022 when Queen Elizabeth II died. For those 70 years, the Prince of Wales, the Prince Charles, lived in this reality that one day I'm going to become king. His life changed every area of his life. We, I don't think any of us could really imagine how differently his life became because of that reality. How many of you have been knighted? You, like you've been declared to be a knight. Anyone? He was declared four times to be a knight between 1971 and 1978. I've never experienced that. I don't think everybody, anybody's going to say, David Huffman, I now declare you to be a knight. But Prince Charles experienced that. Why? Because in the future, the future reality for him, which we were able to witness last year, he became the king of the United Kingdom. How much more so as children of the king, Jesus. We live in this future promise, this blessed hope, this living hope that all of my life should be shadowed. You know, you have those colored sunglasses and everything's kind of tinted in that way. Everything that I see, all that I live, all that I do should be affected by this truth, this solid truth that in one day I will spend eternity in glory with Jesus Christ. Jesus as he, one of the first conversations that he had with Peter early on in their relationship, Jesus calls Peter to follow him. And Peter left everything and followed Christ. There were ups and downs along the way, and we've looked at some of those where Peter had some highs and he had some lows, and there were some embarrassing moments. And then one of the last recorded phrases that we have of Jesus saying to Peter is in John chapter 21. Back at that experience, after the fire, having breakfast, walking with Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then he says at the very end, Peter, follow me. Peter writes this letter and he's encouraging all these believers in Asia Minor, in modern day Turkey, and therefore all of us as well who have read it this morning to follow Christ. And then he ends kind of his very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. And he says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. If we can learn from Peter, from his life and the instructions that he gives us in this letter, I guarantee you, life will not be easy necessarily, but you will experience the grace and peace like never before because of the promise and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Would you close your eyes as we finish this morning?